0: Well, turn your Bibles this morning. To the book of Second Corinthians, chapter four. It is good. It's the first time I get to worship with all of you at the same time, and so it is good to be with you and um, be able to worship together with you. All of us gathered. You know, there are times <clears throat> uh, as a preacher, as a pastor, um, over the years, particularly younger, you start preaching through texts, and you preach on a lot of things you don't, you haven't lived through, or you're not experiencing. Uh, And so there's a particular weight to that because you want to communicate with clarity, with understanding, but it's certainly not out of experience. And so a lot more of it is out of head knowledge and study and the the power of the Spirit. Uh, And then as you start going through life and you have various experiences, then other times you preach texts that you've gone through. Uh, And so they're more reflective. You look back and you talk about them and you work through them. And then there are times... Um, and, and this is one of those seasons in my life where I'm preaching exactly where I'm living right now, uh, and, and deep waters and, and, and dark, uh, times. And, and you folks know that, the majority of you know that, that, um, in the last, uh, six weeks, uh, my wife's been diagnosed with cancer. My grandmother's died and I lost my dad a week ago. Uh, and so it's hard to preach about brokenness frankly, when you're this broken. And um, and so I'm going to pray here in just a moment, because probably my biggest fear uh, would be to be a distraction from the text. Uh, and so if I get a little emotional as we work through the text this morning, uh, I'll pause, and it'll be okay. We'll, we'll be all right, right? I know those are like really awkward, uncomfortable moments, um, uh, I, you know, when somebody's up there speaking, and they kind of lose it a little bit, and you're like, oh, what do we do? And uh, particularly Baptists, we don't want to do it. I mean, we get uncomfortable with somebody, if there's silent prayer for like more than 30 seconds, we think somebody fell asleep. So um, let alone for a preacher to stop talking for a minute. Oh no, uh, what happens? Particularly Steve, because I talk so fast. Um, but I'm just going to pray that God would just make his word plain this morning uh, and that I wouldn't be a distraction, but even as Darren prayed, that really Christ would show through I think it's a it's an important text, and it's one that God is teaching me a lot from. And I believe it was actually God's kindness that He would have us in this section of 2 Corinthians uh, for me to be studying through even this week as a balm to my own soul. And so let's just let's just pray for a moment and then we'll we'll get into the word this morning. Father, um, Lord, it's hard this morning, and yet I'm reminded of your goodness and your kindness and your care. And so I just ask in this moment. That your spirit would be at work in each and every one of us. Father, I ask for your spirit's work in me this morning, uh, that that Steve would be just out of the way, and uh, that whatever you want to say through your word, that that's what goes forth with just clarity. Lord, I ask that you would convict of sin. I ask that you would encourage uh, the discouraged, uh, give fresh oxygen to the lungs of the weary, strength into the legs of those that seem to be stumbling and faltering wisdom to those that are running the race with those that are struggling to know how best to help care for them and encourage them in the journey and all along the way lord that you would be glorified because that's what matters and so father we ask this morning that you would glorify yourself through the word through the work of your son in us coming out of us we pray this together as your children in jesus holy name and all god's people said Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Um, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and then we'll start working our way through that text this morning. And so Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, is a part of all of our shared experience we first see shame in the bible with adam and eve and they sin and immediately they're aware of their nakedness and they are filled with a sense of shame and so what you find next is how sinful people try to handle shamefulness they try to cover and hide and so the first thing adam and eve do is they stitch together these fig leaves they don't feel like that really gets it done before a holy god so then they hide in the bushes uh, to try to avoid his presence and run from his presence and because they're embarrassed and they are filled with this shame. And and you really can think of shame as exposure. I'm exposed uh, before this unblinking eye of God or others, and so I have to hide myself. And then even when they're drawn out of the bushes, they show us another way that we cover shame, and, and that's by blame shifting. It's somebody else's fault. I'm experiencing shame because of what they have done. And really, God, and it's ultimately a blaming of God, if you had done your job, I wouldn't have this sense of shame about my life. We think that we have to hide who we are and what we've done. We lie to hide things that we've done and who we are. We exaggerate stories to make ourselves the hero, to make ourselves look better. We lie and deceive others about sins that we have done. We, we cheat because we haven't studied or we've been lazy we think we are owed something that we haven't earned. We steal to hide our lack or to have better than what we could actually earn. And so we are shamed. And We sin in the midst of that. Well, one of the things that God is teaching me it feels like a rather significant lesson in my life at this moment is that in our brokenness, a key component of it is shame. And it's a shameful thing to feel so weak, and to be exposed as being so broken. Shame when others say things to you like you're doing so well. But you know, it felt like if God were to take his finger off this tightly wrapped ribbon at any moment, the whole package would unravel and fall apart. But somebody else says, you're doing great. You feel ashamed because you know the reality is inside, you're crumbling Shame when you have a job to do, there's a responsibility you need to accomplish, but you don't feel up to the task, and the mental energy required to do the next right thing feels like somebody's asking you to do calculus at the bottom of the ocean with not enough oxygen. Shame when you realize how fragile you really are. Shame when your weaknesses are exposed, and so suddenly you realize things that you knew about yourself that you weren't actually as strong. Or as put together as everybody thought you were, now everybody else knows you're not as strong or as put together as you'd want to appear. And in the midst of our brokenness, this concept of shame can rear its ugly head. And so we want to ask, what was it like when God called Adam and Eve out of the garden? Out in the garden, out of the bushes? They come stumbling out, carrying these, wearing these fig leaves. And then he starts asking them questions and and Uh, A mentor of mine once said, accusations harden the will, but questions prick the conscience. God knew the answers to all these questions, but he asked them anyhow to expose their hearts because that's where the real shame was at. And that's an awful moment. Where are you and why are you hiding and what have you done and bringing them to a point of having to admit, and yet it's an awful moment, but it's a glorious moment because the exposing Questions of God led to his atoning, covering work of their shame. They were, it was impossible for them to cover their own shamefulness, and so God had to first expose them so that he could cover their shame. How about when Jesus exposes the sin of the woman at the well? She's already alone. Uh, she's in the middle of the day. Women don't do this. She's a Samaritan. Uh, she's got all these strikes against her. And Jesus asked, tells her at one point, go get your husband. And in that moment, he exposes her shame. And she's been used and married and cast aside four times, and now she's living with a guy. And it's an awful moment. It's a devastating moment, and yet it's a glorious moment because then Jesus covers her shame with his rescue and his redemption. How about when Jesus asked Peter, Peter who's betrayed him and now Peter's out fishing, he's, he's figured out I can't be an apostle. Um, Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus dies, Peter Peter denies him. Jesus is resurrected. Peter says, I can't do it. Goes back to fishing. Jesus says, come here, let me make you breakfast. And and then Jesus asks, asks him this question. Do you love me? What an awful moment to expose the shame of his denial of Christ. But what a glorious moment to set Peter afresh and anew on mission for what God has for him. I'm learning that the exposure of our brokenness is pretty awful. It's pretty humiliating. It's pretty shameful. And yet it is glorious at the same time. We'll have two weeks to devote to this particular truth because it becomes the dominant truth here towards the end of chapter 4. And we know the reality is that God uses weak people Paul emphasized that reality himself at the start of 1 Corinthians. You might remember he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. But what is brokenness? And how does God use it? What is his relationship with? And the relationship of brokenness with shame, and how is that shame covered? Because we know by faith God loves to cover our shame with his glory. And so let's just be reminded for a second of where we really are in 2 Corinthians. He's answering this question from chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be a minister of the gospel? Who is sufficient to be a believer who is a triumphed over one who follows Jesus in his triumphal procession, who, who is sufficient for these things, and he's answering that with five different things that we have as a result of being redeemed under the new covenant, the New Testament reality, and the revealing that no one comes righteous. We're all sinners. We're all condemned to die. There's our ultimate shame. We're separated from God. Uh, we, we, are, we are not reconciled to him or man, uh, we are lost and alone, and, and we are depraved, and we are, we are not looking for God. No one seeks after God, no, not one. And then God gloriously sent his son uh, to come to earth and pour deity into humanity, lives a perfect life, dies a sinless death of his own choosing, and then resurrects the third day. And if you would turn from your sin, repent, and believe in Jesus, put faith in Christ, you will be saved. That's New Covenant. We understand the fullness now of the storyline of the Bible that began all the way back in Genesis 3, where God just hinted at it in the midst of speaking into Adam and Eve's shame by saying, I will send a serpent crusher to you. And so New Covenant, Paul says we have these five things. We have confidence, and we have hope, and we have ministry, and now we come to this fourth of them. We have treasure. We have this treasure. And so that's what Paul's answering. And and so what he's speaking into this morning is this truth. In the midst of following christ it 's not always easy and and Jesus actually described it as cross bearing work, right take up your cross and follow me and so it 's hard and it 's difficult at times in hebrews twelve it 's likened to running a marathon and 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 it's it 's pressure packed and Um, And yet Jesus says this mystical thing where he says, uh, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So somehow it's easier with Jesus. and, And how do we work through all those kind of complexities? And so how do we press on in New Covenant ministry? How does Paul preach to his own heart about his own insufficiency? And this morning we will learn that we press on in New Covenant ministry because our brokenness actually shows God's treasure. He's going to tell us, that this brokenness that we feel, this brokenness that's exposed is actually part of God's means. And so you're wrestling with your insufficiency is an identification of your true reality. You see, the fact of the matter this morning is we're all broken. It's just certain seasons show you how broken you are. And they reveal how bad things are it's a little bit like in a because i'm a car guy right you go to restore a car and the first thing they do is they'll take the car and they'll take it into a sand booth uh, and they spray it down uh with with sand particles being shot out of an air gun because it strips everything away it strips away the paint it strips away the bondo it reveals everything and so suddenly something that could have looked fine but somebody just smeared bondo over it, which is more like a plastic filler uh, to try to cover up rust spots, and then they paint it over it and maybe it looks smooth and wonderful, and then they spray it, and all of a sudden there 's all these pinhole rust spots and then there's this other spot 's going to have to be welded and patched and it 's going to have to be fixed and this is what sometimes happens in your life and mine. It's not that the brokenness didn't already exist. It was already there. It just hadn't been exposed. It's like, it's like my dad one time going to change the wax ring on our toilet uh, when we lived in Baltimore. And, and, and simple job, and we've done that before, no big deal. But suddenly he takes off the toilet, takes off the wax ring, and realizes that the floor seems soft. And as he's probing the floor, suddenly you realize that the, the, there's been a leaking and, and so the floor is rotten, and so suddenly a simple 20-minute wax ring change turns into a two-week bathroom remodel because you've got to fix everything now. It's an exposure. The brokenness was already there, just nobody knew it yet. Your brokenness is already here. You just may not realize how broken you are. And so once you come to realize it, asking for these things, Paul tells us, we press on, because our brokenness actually shows God's treasure. And so we can look at it first of all of what it's like living as a clay pot. That's what he describes us as. He says we have this treasure in jars of clay. What does that really mean? What does that really look like? Well, the images of this clay pot. Clay pots in, uh, in Paul's day and in, in Jesus' day were utilitarian containers. They really were uh, valueless. They, they didn't really matter a whole lot. To anybody. Uh, this matches how Paul thought of himself. Uh, he considered himself a slave of Christ. He considered himself the least of all the apostles. He considered himself as why am I even an apostle, one born out of time or not at the right timing? Uh, and, and so Paul thought of himself very low. That's not that Paul had uh, some kind of inferiority complex. It was Paul just recognizing the reality. None of the other apostles had run around murdering Christians, but Paul had, right? Um, and, and so Paul recognized who he really was. And it's interesting because he uses this imagery of being a pet clay pot twice. One is here, and the other one is actually in Romans 9 when he's talking about the sovereignty of God, where essentially what he says is God can do with me whatever he wants to do with me. So it's very clear in Paul's mind whether he was sitting in someone's house one day and he's watching uh, uh, some folks cook and maybe his buddy's barbecuing and, um, I, and, and maybe, maybe he's just watching the lady of the house make a meal or, and he's thinking about what they're doing and he's seen them use different vessels and he sees them use a clay pot. And for some reason that's just stuck in Paul's mind. He thought, that's actually what I'm like. And clay pots were the Tupperware of their day. Right Now all of you somewhere in your house have a Tupperware cabinet. Uh, and it's the bane of everyone's existence, right? You need them, but you open the cabinet and they attack you, right? They jump out at you. You can't keep lids with containers. Uh, If I've got to empty our dishwasher or sink drainer, I I do Tupperware either last because I'm dreading it or first because I I hate it. It, It's just, I hate this thing. Floating them all in together. And so sometimes, this is confession moment, my wife doesn't know this, I throw them away and and I don't I I just, they're gone, right? Um, And so we get Chinese food. You get these little containers. Those are great to give meals to people because you don't care. Throw it away, right? Um, This is utilitarian. In in their day, they didn't keep valuable documents in these kind of cheap clay pots. Um, They just threw whatever needed to be in them. And if it broke, it was, nobody cried over that spilled milk. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, Over time, they would degrade. They'd get chipped by rough handling. They were not precious, To anybody. They're ordinary. They're cheap, so they're disposable. They're fragile, so they're actually easily cracked and broken. This is how Paul thinks of himself when he of himself when he asks the question who is sufficient. Now these containers might be good for a giveaway meal, packing your kids' lunch in, so you're not too concerned if it doesn't come home from school with them. A takeout Chinese dinner or even some leftovers. But, but no one is taking one of these home. You don't, you're not going to go home today um, and, and open up your Tupperware cabinet and put your will in it or your uh, car documents or, or tax documents or, or, or precious uh, hand-me-down coins or gold or fine jewelry. You're not, you're not going to say, let me store it in this Tupperware container. They don't hold They're not used to hold important or necessary things. And it's at this moment that we actually run into the first problem with this text. Because this is us. So very much so in one sense, I am telling you, hey, isn't it great to be Tupperware for Jesus? And that's not too exciting. Because we all want to be very precious and very valuable. We all want to have inherent worth, not just in what we hold. And I want to pause in this moment to tell you this text isn't about your worth or your value. The reality is you are a chosen child of God. If you've, as I said earlier, turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ, that's a reflection that he rescued you. That's a reflection that he called you from death to life. Very Lazarus kind of moment. You're dead in the grave. He says, come forth. He awakens you and you obey in faith and repentance. He calls us princes and princesses and join heirs with Christ and he's come that he might rescue and redeem many brothers and sisters. And so he's not talking primarily about value here. However, what we try to do is misconstrue this and think that my value is in who I am rather than Christ in me. And we begin to run into problems here because we don't want to be a clay pot we want to be a ming vase we want to be the precious tool an instrument uh, last week i was going through my dad's tools my dad had more tools than you could shake a stick at. i do not exaggerate he had eight different socket sets um, I'm going through his tools. And at one point, we're like, what do we even do with these? And we were setting aside tools for each of the sons and even for each of the grandsons. And um, it was kind of cool because my dad had a very unique way he would sign his name. I uh, I actually imitated my dad's signature as a teenager so that I could forge it on various documents. And that came in quite handy through seventh and eighth grade um avoided lots of problems and so it was funny because later in life i would send my dad a a father's day card or birthday card and i'd actually address it to jerry johns and i'd sign it with his signature and so it was kind of funny to get the card and he'd be like he'd know exactly who it was from uh, as soon as he would get it and so my dad actually would use a steel etching tool and he'd etch his name into his tool so that's kind of precious as we're working through that but as i'm going through my dad's tools there were craftsman tools and there were snap-on tools and then there were tools that frankly you could get at harbor freight and those just went in a cardboard box to give away to Habitat for Humanity. And those were tools my dad had, but they weren't worth a whole lot. They didn't have sentimental value, they don't have real monetary value. Uh, they were utilitarian. We gave them away. Well, everybody wants the snap on and the craftsman lifelong warranty tools. Not a lot of people find value in the other ones. You actually get them because you don't care if you break them. We all want to be snap on and craftsmen, we don't want to be utilitarian. And so it's painful, and so when that becomes the reality, we begin to set about on a mission then to mask who we really are. We don't want to be exposed to as being this very simple utilitarian clay pot. We run into a lot of problems when we act that way. Churches run into a lot of problems when they have pastors who think that the church can't exist without them. That's a pastor trying to be a Ming vase when they're a clay pot. We run into a lot of problems in our relationships when we have to be the Ming Vaz. You need to treat me delicately all the time. You need to treat me as I'm always precious. Now, I'm not talking about marriage. Obviously, I'm not talking about God telling husbands to treasure their wives. I'm talking about the sense of I'm gonna find my identity just in who I am and you better find value in me and I really struggle that the text says I'm very fragile and very disposable and very weak. Paul then goes forward and he starts talking about how damaged this pot is. He points to a series of cracks and breaks, chips in the life of the clay pot. Churches have a lot of things on the table in front of their pulpit, flowers, I don't know, signs, bulletins, creches during um, Christmas time. You may have wondered, why do we have clay pots? It's because of this text. It's a reminder of one of our core values of community, that we are committed to living in open, transparent relationships with one another, that we are all weak and we are all fragile and we are all disposable. We are all jars of clay. Paul gives this series of four comparisons that each point to different levels of suffering as a follower of Christ. The fragility of the clay pot is the fragile nature of the servant of God. The descriptor that he gives and then its opposite give us insight into the experiences in the life of a believer and what it's like to become aware of your own brokenness. The first one, and they increase. What's interesting is they all increase. They step up each time. So the first one he says is that we are afflicted, right, but we are not crushed. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Paul uses this term to describe his trials at a number of times throughout the epistles. I've been afflicted here, I was afflicted there. I experienced afflictions. It's interesting, the word literally means pressed in on every side. But when he says he's not crushed, and, and that's really the, 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 the capturing of the words, and what our English translator, translators are trying to capture is the poetic nature that Paul's talking about, where he's describing a clay pot, but also in a way that he's really describing our hearts. Because what he says is it's like I'm being pressed on every side, but there's still a way out. Kind of has the the idea, a similar idea that though we are tempted, uh, there's always a means of escape. There's always another path forward. But what comes with this is the idea that I don't know what to do. I'm in a trial. I'm suffering I'm in a difficult situation. I'm, I'm in a spot where I, I'm not sure what to do. You're in the kind of spot where you're calling people for counsel. You're asking for help. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And and the reality is, you still have one or two ideas left in you. You you still see one or two paths forward. Maybe you're working through relational. Um, conflict. And, and so you've tried meeting and, and you've tried uh, calling and, and you've tried writing emails and, and, and you're thinking about maybe there's another thing that I can do. But what, what begins to happen when you and I start going through these kinds of difficult processes, we don't see God answering. And that's discouraging to us. Right? Maybe you've run into this in your parenting. Okay, look, I've I I tried to time out chair. I've tried the, the corporal discipline methods. I've tried taking things away. I've tried rewarding with other things, and I'm running out of ideas. And I know I still got a couple more ideas. I could, I could, I could go for counseling. I could, um, I, could, I could re-go back to a mingling of some of these disciplinary efforts. I could work on some consistency. But the truth is, your discouragement levels are rising. And you're beginning to question in your heart Will this really work? Where's the answer? That's what he's describing. I'm pressed in. There's still a way out. That's what he's saying. I'm not crushed yet. It's it's not that there's nothing left. But the temptation in your and my heart as a vessel is what's beginning to be exposed is our frustration when things don't seem to be working out the right way. Our irritation that one plus one isn't equaling two in my relationships, parenting, or work life. I'm doing, I'm trying to do, Jesus, what you're telling me to do, and, and I'm, I'm like making no traction here. I want to overcome this habitual sin, and, and so I'm trying, I've been memorizing scripture, and I've been meeting with accountability partners, and, and, and I've been trying to repent, and, and I know I can also do a different schedule, and I can do these things, but I'm struggling, Jesus, because I can't seem to get ahead. I'm afflicted here, and what's being exposed is how weak we are. It begins to be revealed in very small ways that, that we're very chipped, and we don't have it all together. It's my dad at the end of his rope with me at 16, having me in the car outside of the Marine Corps recruiting station, and he was giving me last resort. Two options, come home and obey the rules of the home, or go in there and have him sign me away. Parents had to sign, and I enlisted in the Marines. Those were my options. And I remember I looked at him and said, what if I choose Neither. He said, you get out here and you're on your own. So there's really two options. Praise be to God that he reached into this hard, stupid rebel's heart, and and I chose, let's go home. But it's that kind of mentality. What would bring someone to the brink of that moment? Your your, your last resort option is last resort because you really don't want to go there. And spiritually, there's a lot that starts happening in your heart and my heart in that process. And we start fighting with God quite a bit. Like, God, why'd you put me in this if you're not going to answer it? Why are you making me do the last thing I want to do? That doesn't feel very fair. I thought I had the answers, and now I have no answers. That's the first level. It only gets harder from there. The second one is that he says he's perplexed, but he's not despairing. Perplexed but not driven to spare. Now, what's interesting here is what the word literally means. You could translate it this way. You're going to write this on the side leaf of your Bible. At wit's end. This is when you've done last resort and it didn't work either. This is the Red Sea in front of you, Egyptian army behind you. This is the proverbial spiritual rock in a hard place. This is you can't go on this is you've asked counsel from folks and the counsel they give you, you otherwise would have thought it's great counsel because it's stuff you've already tried. There's no new ideas out there. You read through books and there's no new ideas and, and maybe you come to a point of, of being broken in your sinful arrogance that way and, you, and you're just pouring over the Bible and you're like somewhere in the 66 books there's got to be an answer and you scour from cover to cover and there doesn't seem to be a good answer to this. Nothing you seem to find is an answer to cure your heart hurt you're stressed what will i say in this situation what can i do what does god want from me here something something has got to change i cannot live this way any longer something has got to give we share our trials with somebody And they love us, but they don't know what to say to us. And so they just stare blankly back at us. They don't seem to have any answers for what's going on. People ask you what you're going to do. And in that moment, you're exposed because you know what your only answer is. What are you go- so what are you going to do? I don't know. This is, those, this is the, the step where unfortunately sometimes you'll run across people that they'll judge your previous step. And they, here's what I mean by this. They, they'll, they'll ask you, they'll give you their counsel and you've done this. And, and, they'll, and then they'll say, well, what are you going to do? And part, sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes you run into people that are then judging this brokenness level in you. And this is what they assume. You didn't try hard enough, step number one. And you feel ashamed because you know what they've exposed in that moment? That's actually your deepest fear too. Is that you're in this spot because you're a failure. And you feel ashamed of that. But Paul says he's perplexed but not despairing. And so what it means is I'm stressed but I'm not stressed out. What he's saying is, in this moment, I have to cling to particular scriptural truths. And and honestly, this is how we can minister and bless to people that are in this spot when there are no answers. I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody that there's no answers. And so you don't want to give blank stare, right? At minimum, you want to put your arm around and say, I love you, right? But you also do want to feed them truth. want to give them truth. I had One of my brother-in-laws, he and I are going to have lunch this next week. He just texted me out of the blue. I actually asked my wife, I said, did you tell... did you you rat me out, you know, not mad, but did you rat me out to your family or did you tell your brother? She said, no. And so I know as God prompted my brother-in-law just to reach out to me. He said, I don't even know if I got a lot to say, but maybe we could just rehearse truth together. That's exactly how you minister to someone in this stage. It's good ministry. And so so they need truths because what Paul is clinging to is this. He's not gonna be in despair. He's, He's really thinking this. I don't know what God is going to do, but I know he has to do something. I know it. I I don't even know how I know it other than by faith. I believe there is no answer. Here's the Red Sea. There's the Egyptian army. Okay, God, you remember the whole, you're gonna make us a mighty nation. Like we're all right here, we're about to die. We're either gonna drown, we're gonna get our throat slit. What you gonna do? You gotta do something. And you might remember not a lot of people believed in that moment. Because when you are in that season of broken revealing, it is astoundingly difficult to preach truth to your own heart. That's why we are all jars of clay because we need to rehearse those kinds of truths with one another. It is emotional weight. It's mental pressure. It's spiritual hindsight that asks questions like if I had done something else, would I still be at this brick wall of decision-making? It's reconsidering conversations that you had or thinking about conversations you wish you had had. Notes you wrote, notes you wish you had written. The reality that there seems to be no more options at this point. So Jesus must have a plan. After all, when the storm is the fiercest, he says not to doubt his love, right? That was what they doubted. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The storm is raging. They're afraid they're going to die. They're afraid they're going to drown. And their question to Jesus was what? Don't you love me? These are the kind of moments they've rode to the point of exhaustion. They've exerted all their effort, and it's revealed their brokenness in that moment. What's really being revealed is their weakness of faith, and they have no good answers. This is insight for you. This is where a person is very tempted to question, does God love me? That was their question of Jesus. But Paul says, no, I'm going to push back against that. And he says, I'm going to choose to believe by faith God really does love me. And even in the face of having no answers, I'm going to cling to the character of God, of his trust, his love, and his comfort. There's no greater balm for the soul that is perplexed but not despairing than to be reminded of the character of God. Know the character of God for your own heart, but know the character of God so that you might preach it to others' hearts. That's what they need. He goes on to a third level. He says Perse- persecuted but not forsaken. At each point, the jar is getting a little bit more broken. Paul uses this term throughout his writings as well, this term of persecution. It's fascinating. It, it means that it's punishment that I've received for serving God. It's, it's specifically hurt and pain and weaknesses that are being revealed because I did what was right. Paul, for Paul to write that to the Corinthians it's pretty shocking. you got to hope that somebody, when they read this letter to the church at Corinth, was awake enough to think, oh, wait, we did that. you got to hope that. Because Paul was there 18 months, instructs them, writes them one letter. They respond back to that with questions that are off the wall, just total bonkers, right? And so he responds with what we have as 1 Corinthians, answering their 10 questions while dealing with other issues that they have uh, and calling them to obedience that they don't want to do. So they don't obey. So Paul switches up his plans and goes for the painful visit. Bam! I'm going to show up and I'm going to preach to you a little bit. And I'm going to call you to repentance. I'm I'm going to put the wheels back on this wagon. That doesn't work. And in fact, it goes so badly that they think terrible things of Paul you're in it for the money, you're power hungry, you don't preach well, you're ugly, you don't talk well, we got better preachers than you. And so Paul is suffering rejection from people that he has invested in because, because he's doing what he's supposed to do. That stinking hurts. I'm going to experience more pain, more brokenness, more shattering to the clay pot because I do what I'm supposed to do now (laughs) anybody ever accused me of being the brightest bulb in the pack but if I stick my hand in the fire and I get burned I'm pretty loath to stick it in a second time if you're already hurting the last thing you want to do is go do obedient things that there's every good chance are only going to hurt you more And so Paul is talking, this becomes relational. It's interesting, the first two are very mental and emotional. This one becomes very relational. Because what it means is the very people that you're trying to minister the gospel to and with are the very people that are rejecting you. And so you're going... And you know that you're very broken. You know that you don't have all the answers. You've prayed about this. You've sweated over this conversation, this phone call. You don't know how to even work through this. You're trying your very best. God knows you love him. You love them. You really, it's not, you're not going because you're irritated with them. You're not going because you're mad at them. You just want to go and try to work through relational uh, problems and let the gospel prevail. And in that moment, not only do they resist the content of what you're saying, they blame you for being the carrier of the message. And so all it does is cause another crack, another hole, another breach in the clay pot. But what Paul says he's reminded of, though, is he's not forsaken by God. Paul recognizes and preaches to his own heart is that when everyone else has abandoned him, he has God. When no one else understands, when loneliness sets in, When the painful sting of rejection for doing right comes, Paul clings to the acceptance of Christ. When there is no one else, Paul thinks like the woman at the well, who is this Jewish man that would accept me? It's the Savior. Paul thinks like the little children that the disciples would push away from Jesus, that Jesus says, let them come to me. Paul reminds himself that he is safe in the arms of Jesus. He comes to the last one. He says he's struck down, but not destroyed this is the culminating set of comparisons for paul it means literally to have been laid low it's to have such damage done to this pot that you would begin to ask what good could it be for a pot this broken a pot this shattered this this many holes and cracks in it you can't put any liquid in it you're certainly not storing any grain or rice in it Uh, what what is it good for any longer Isn't it time to just throw it out? It's almost at the point of where where Job is sitting on the ash heap and there's broken clay pots around him, and he uses it to scrape boils. Is, Is it like that is what the pot is for? It's as broken as it possibly can be. Now, it's important for you to understand the emotional and physical suffering are tightly related. The Bible reflects it in a positive way when it says a merry heart does good like a medicine. Well, sorrow suffering leaves you stressed out makes you physically weary your sleep is not as restful pressure and stress works on your metabolism your heart rate your blood pressure and your ability to think clearly your ability to communicate with others is diminished as pressure mounts and you have nothing left don't miss this now paul the mission's master, the most prominent apostle, the successful rescue story, he knew what it was like to be so revealed, to be so brought low, so knocked out, that he would ask this, what am I good for anymore? He only gives one limitation here. He says he's so broken, he's so chipped, he's so cracked, that it seems, seems like it's just short of being good for the trash heap. What is left for a jar of clay that's this broken. What good is it any longer to the household? And so we turn then to the idea of the treasure within. Because Paul says, we have this treasure in these jars of clay. The worth of this vessel is not the container, but the contents. We have this increasingly broken clay pot that can't even hold water, let alone documents or grain. But God says it's into this clay pot that God puts treasure. There's two things you should think about. First of all, this brokenness is at work in us. He says it's doing a work in our lives. In verse 10, he says, always carrying in the body, our body, these clay pots, the death of Jesus. Verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake. Uh, Verse 12, so death is at work in us. He's reminding us that our mortal flesh, our fragility, is so that God might do a work at first in us. You know, we understand it from 1 Peter about the reality of trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials expose our brokenness. Suffering exposes how weak and fragile we are. It's like buying a, a pot at TJ Maxx, taking it home, and you're picking away at the sticker on the side that had to reduce price, and you peel it away, and there's a crack there. Like, oh, that's nice. That's what trials do. They peel away the stickers and they reveal what has always already been true about us, that we're actually very broken vessels. And when he says what that does in our faith is it reveals the genuineness of our faith. Because hear me now, you can claim Jesus all you want. You can do the whole Lord, Lord thing. Have I not followed you? Have I not been to church? Have I not given money? Have I not served? Blah, 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 blah. Have I not read my blah, 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 blah. But then trial comes and you ain't got no time for Jesus or his people your faith was not genuine that's what the text says you can tell me it's gold all the time stick it in a furnace and it all melts away it wasn't gold it's all dross It's, it's nothing and so trials expose our true brokenness and so they reveal our faith they they purify our faith and they actually make it stronger You take a true believer and take them through a trial and they respond rightly because it's important you respond rightly in your trials. Uh, I don't have time to preach on that this morning. That's James. But you respond rightly in your trials and you actually come out like steel that has been tempered and made stronger. Trials don't destroy the faith of a true believer. So don't ever think when you see someone who claims Jesus and they go through trials and they come out to the other side and they're like, I don't even know if I believe God exists. They were never saved. Jesus says in the four soils, plants spring up. The trials of this life choke out life. That means there was never life there to begin with. They expose and they purify, they strengthen. This is what sorrowing, suffering, and the revealing of our brokenness does in us. When people climb Mount Everest, they have to acclimate to various altitudes to survive. It's not uncommon at advanced base camp at 21,000 feet above sea level, that people will operate at 75% of their oxygen level. Now, if you went to the hospital today at 75%, you would be immediately admitted to the hospitality. I commend to you, quit hiding your brokenness, but let others see the glorious light of Christ. Let them hear the stories of God's provision. Let them know of God's blessing. Let them know of the unique kindnesses and declarations of God's love in the hardest of times because either you are in a trial, you've just come out of one, and oh, I don't want this for you, but you're headed into one. And so may we covenant together to not hide what God is doing in us that others might see him come out of us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being patient with clay pots and broken vessels. And